Welcome back to the program. The Bay Area is in many ways defined by its bridges. Once famous for their architectural beauty and cutting-edge design, the new span of the Bay Bridge may soon be equally famous for its faulty construction, inflated costs, and mismanagement. This morning, we're going to talk to a man who has been at the center of much good with respect to the Bay Area bridges. He is Donald McDonald. He is an award-winning architect. He's the designer of the new eastern span of the Bay Bridge. He's also the first architect to work on the Golden Gate Bridge since its original construction. He is the designer of numerous other world-renowned bridges. And it is my pleasure to welcome Donald McDonald to the program today to talk about his new book, Bay Bridge, History and Design of a New Icon. Donald McDonald, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Great to have you here. One of the things that is so remarkable, and for anybody that has seen any of the Bay Bridge being built, or, or any major bridge for that matter, is the engineering that goes into these projects, the marvel of, of both engineering and building these bridges today. Talk a little about that first, Donald. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that uh, if you go back to the Golden Gate Bridge, the engineers worked with slide rules and you know longhand calculations. And today they work with computers and they have you know great imagery. They can, in essence, build all the bridge in, on, in a framework in a computer, and then they can shake it like an earthquake so they can watch how all the joints react and they change different colors when the stresses go through them. And remember, I'm an architect, not an engineer. I'll tell you an overview, but you have to talk to engineers to get a complete <laughs> breakdown. So, but uh, I don't like to sort of crowd their territory. But I've been around them so long, and I've worked on so many bridge projects, and that you do get a, a, an understanding how the bridge works like a muscle in your body, basically. And so, but the thing is, what we do is we try to bring the engineers into the world of you know design and aesthetics, proportions, and things like that. And a lot of that works with the way the bridges really work, like when a bridge attaches itself to the what they call a pile cap, and that's the the piece of structure at the water that's on these caissons, you know, it, it takes the greatest forces in an earthquake at that point, so the tower's wider there, and it's slender, it gets more slender as it goes up, and you can see it on the Golden Gate Bridge of the tower legs, and on the new bay, eastern span of the Bay Bridge, the tower is bigger at the bottom than it is at the top, and that's because that's where the greater forces are, so proportionally, that works with the way your eye reads the tower, if the tower is a pair of parallel lines that go straight up at quite a distance, your eye having a lens that's got a curve on it, like a convex curve, it spreads out that tower at the top. So what you do is you step it up or stagger it at an you know, angle so you correct that optical illusion. And so those types of things seem to work really well with the engineering. Another thing we do is we work from what we call the golden section. It's a golden means, and it was highly developed in the Renaissance, you know, back in the 1400s, 1500s. It was even used before that in the pyramids. And what it is, it's a form of geometry. And you'll see it in a, a seashell or something where there's, it can form in a mathematical pattern, but it's a very pleasing pattern. And so when you use this system in, in bridges, it translates nicely into stresses and analyzing the stresses that take place on a bridge. So, for instance, on the New Bay Bridge, I use the rule of thirds, which is like you put the deck a third of the height of the tower. You know, like when you're a photographer and you take pictures as an amateur, usually you put the horizon in the middle. And professional photographers rarely do that unless there's a special reason to do it. But they put it a third from the bottom or a third from the top. So the picture isn't divided in half. So that's one of the approaches. And the Golden Gate Bridge has that. If you look at where the tower is and it's 
the deck is in its relationship to the tower, so one third, two thirds, and the and the west bends of the bay bridge is one half, one half. So you can see right there where the engineers that did the Caltrans that did most of the work, or did all the work on the old west bends. You can see how the they didn't take that into account, and why the Golden Gate has a more of a graceful curve to the cabling, and uh, it's a more elegant bridge, and that's one of the sort of basic reasons. And so I used to also thing called the, the golden triangle, and that's the way you do a triangle. And you use certain proportions in that triangle, and you sort of spin it around, and the legs of the tower and the new eastern spans are pentagons, and all the the uh, piers are pentagons, and they have... So I've taken this form and used it throughout the bridge. And that's one of the ways you tie the bridge together as a unit, even though there's a main span, and then there's a viaduct sort of thing with light poles. So you can see it in the light poles, in the piers and in the handrails and in the main tower legs. So it reads as a unit. The same thing was done on the Golden Gate Bridge with the chevron forms. If you look carefully at the bridge, these are non-structural, but they're there to break the light up and to scale the massive pieces down to a more human level. Given that, given the technology we have today, this way in which we can design bridges, as as you were talking about, in terms of, of computer technology, computer-aided design, etc., why is it when we look at bridges today, bridge construction today, they take longer to get done, they cost more than they're supposed to, we, we have all of these marvelous things to help us in the design process, and yet the outcomes are more expensive, take longer, and then things like the Bay Bridge, which we can talk about in a little bit. Well, what happens is that because the, like the soil conditions that are under the water are sometimes what they thought they were, they'll do a lot of testing, geotech tests, so they might not catch everything, you know, and some. So the foundation sometimes creates a lot of unknowns, and that's where extras come in. And like in the Bay Bridge, we had a massive amount of rise in the price of steel when it went to bid the first times, and the price of concrete, and they didn't anticipate that. And the Chinese were buying all that for the, the Olympic Games. That's now eased up a bit. But most of the bridges now are going what they call design-built. That's where you design a bridge and you guarantee the price, and the overruns in that are fairly minimal. And uh, so, like, we're doing a bridge up in Portland, the first of its type in North America. It's a bridge for the transit system and for pedestrians and bicycles. And that came in under budget. The community loves the design. It's under construction, and it appears to be on schedule. So that's a design-build issue in the end. We designed it with TriMet and, and some engineers, and then it was followed through. They call it a prescriptive uh, bidding process where they follow our exact designs and they can't modify them. And so in that way, we've been able to bring them in on budget, on time, and even under budget. The bridge we did in Charleston, South Carolina, came in under budget, ahead of schedule, and that, again, was a design bill, and that took about four years. And the politics were totally different in South Carolina than they are in San Francisco or the Bay Area. And the politics have delayed this bridge for years. Probably if you totaled up, it'd be eight or nine years just to delay in the politics with was there... Gary Davis and, and, you know, dealing with the Buy America Clause and then, you know, different cities were involved in it. There's, I guess, five cities around the Bay that had participated in the, in the selection and peer review panels and the soil condition under that part of the Bay is really tough to work in. And you have to go down at least 300 feet because it's just stiff mud. There's very little of it. You can anchor towers on. And so it's, in the politics, the people participate more locally, the handicapped have a lobby, the Bicycle Coalition has one. So there's a lot of things that happen here that you don't have in other cities. And But the main thing is that moving more to design-built aren't these big overruns. 
Was there something inherent in the design of the new eastern span of the Bay Bridge that made it more problematic to try and build, given the conditions? Well, you know, I, that never did come up at all. You know, we were well aware of the conditions to build. And, the uh, and, you know, even the problems today are they're kind of simple problems compared to the, you know, the ideas that are in that bridge. You know, for instance, there's... The, the bridge has hinges throughout the length of it, especially the viaduct, what they call the Skyway, and that's a pretty good innovation by the engineers, and it's kind of a hinge, so if there is movement, it can absorb the seismic waves and survive, and if there's any damage, they can come back in these hinges and repair the pieces that have taken the seismic shock. Same thing in the tower. There's a four-legged tower, and the tower has four legs, so it can move in a more flexible manner. Between those legs, there's what they call link beams are like fusible links, and they can bend and sometimes break if there's a bridge, but the bridge can still stay in operation while they go back up there and repair them. So those are real innovations. Another thing that's happened is the cable has come in prefabricated sections, and it's it's over a mile long. And what it is is the cable is made up, the main cable is made up uh, like 137 strands and these strands are, have, I think, 127 wires in them, and they're bundled, and they're prefabbed and measured. Each each one of these strands has a certain distance, and they have to be right on, because what happens is it starts on the deck from an anchorage plate. It goes up over the main tower and down to the saddle up. Then it comes down on one side of the deck, and it goes underneath the deck, comes back up to the tower, and it comes back down to an anchoring plate on the other side of the, of the east end of the deck. And that's a pretty interesting thing that, because in the old days, like the Golden Gate Bridge, they would, you know, do the cable one wire at a time, and it would take forever to take the wire up, wrap around the towers, bring it back down. They kept doing that till it was done. And so, and on the Golden Gate, you've had you got about the wire they used on that bridge. You go, it could be if you measured, it would three miles around the globe, around the Earth. I mean, that's how long it was. So they had those systems of doing. It. Now they prefab most of that cabling, and in doing that, they don't have to have that whole contraption up there to do it. As you watched the engineering and then the construction of the Bay Bridge, did you anticipate some of the problems that have subsequently been faced? No, all the problems that have come up are strictly engineering problems. And if there's some design alteration that we have to change, we'll do it. Like what came up, for instance, a simple one was that we had halogen lights for the, the safety lights on the bridge, in other words, the traffic lights and that. And then during the process, it's been gone on so long that the LED lights came out, so we modified those lights and put LEDs in there. And that in itself changed the, the whole sequence of the lighting massing structures. And, and so what you see up there now, are, <clears throat> that was a major change in, in the design. But it was to the betterment because of tremendous energy savings. The LEDs have a forty to 50,000 our light on, life on them, and there's a lot of things that, that are very progressive that came out of this bridge, and that's some of them. If you were designing the bridge anew today, would it be right. any? How would it be different? Well, it probably wouldn't be that much different because to get the design off the ground, we had to go through you know peer review panels and through politics, and so many people participated in in the design, to, you know, for its acceptance. And we did, I think we did five major studies at different bridges, and we took as a year of presentations to the peer review panels in the newspaper and the communities that were involved. And so this is sort of the one that they finally selected. So I think if we did it all over again, we'd probably select the same bridge. It's just a guess, of course. I mean, 
the things can change in time. Was there something in the, the design that made it more difficult to build that led to some of the problems that we're seeing today? I, I don't think so. I think it's strictly the, the problems are, are they're small in nature, like wells and concrete pores and these bolts, but, you know, they're, it's not the major. It's a very safe bridge. It's got redundancies in it and there's a lot of things that make it, I mean, so much better than the old bridge, even the way it sits today. So. What about the safety aspect of it? Talk a little bit about that and whether or not these problems that we're seeing today, the bolts, the concrete, the welds, etc., whether they do, in fact, jeopardize safety. Well, I mean, the thing is, I'm not an engineer, so I don't like to answer those questions. <laughs> I'm an architect, and I'm more there for the aesthetics, but... From what I gather, it's a very safe bridge, even the way it stands today. It's much safer than the other one, and, and when they take care of these somewhat minor problems, you know, it, there shouldn't be a problem. I mean, I don't see it. What has the technology of today enabled you to do in terms of design that you might not have been able to have done 15, 20 years ago? Well, I think the main thing is the engineers can, when they work with architects like myself who've had a lot of bridge experience, we can... We can get ideas out there that are very pleasing aesthetically, and they can, you know, do some quick checks to see if they're going to work. And I think the fact that the computer has come into play, that they can really analyze things quickly to see whether we're we're going down the wrong path, and that's happened a lot on on all the bridges I work on. We try to, I would say, push the envelope, but we try to, you know, respond to the public's desire to have a signature structure, brand the city with the bridge, and then how we're going to get it done engineering-wise, and we use the context, we work out the context and things like that of the neighborhood or the region. In doing that, we're able to come up with a unique bridge that can be branded, you know, the city can brand itself with. Would it have been easier, would it have been better to design a straight viaduct in, in place of where the eastern span of the bridge is now? Yeah, well, I mean, that's probably been easier. We wouldn't be able to get the, the big span, so that, you know, it'd be a smaller span. It'd be like a 700-foot span. The main span of the bridge now, it's around 1,200, so you can get ships passing it, and when you shrink it down with the viaduct, you're sort of limited to the spans. And it probably would have been faster and cheaper. Well, it would have been for sure, but the point is that the public didn't want that. Yeah, the bridge that you have today is the result of a lot of politicking and a lot of participation by the public wanting a signature structure, and so that's what happens. Talk a little bit about that and your job as an architect when you hear communities wanting signature structures and really having to design to the politics as opposed to pure creativity, I suppose. Yeah, I think that the, the hardest thing is to find out what they mean by signature. I mean, it's such an abstract term for some people, like the bridges we're doing, the bridge we've done in Portland. It just so happened the head of the, the, the committee of engineers and, or the politics happened to be an architect. So he could guide us, he could guide the public in a lot easier way than an engineer might be able to guide the public. So one of the things is to find out when they do want us. In fact, many cities now want sig signature bridges because it's a very good branding element. Like I said earlier about how San Francisco brands itself with the Golden Gate Bridge. So the idea is to, how do you find that ingredient? And like I said a bit ago, we used the context of a neighborhood, the context of a region, and how does this bridge will it look from an airplane or from a boat or from cars or pedestrians, and how will they use it? And then out of that will grow this 
image and certain spans take certain kinds of bridges like the longest spans in the world are suspension bridges and the next down is a cable state bridge the difference between those two is a suspension bridge has a curved cable and the, and the cable state has these straight line cables like a sail and so and then from there you go down to arches and concrete viaducts the, the box you go down smaller and smaller bridges have less and less complicated construction so there's certain spans that work, certain bridges work with certain spans. And so we always look at that, how much do they want to span and what kind of bridge is going to work with that kind of span. Talk a little bit about some of your favorite bridges, both bridges that you've worked on here in the Bay Area as well as throughout the country. Yeah, well, there's there's a little bridge we did in, it's not my most favorite, it's a very favorable bridge for us. There's a little bridge we did in, uh, a foot, foot bridge we did in Pleasant Hill at the BART station. On the Iron Horse Trail, it's a kind of butterfly arch, and it's got cabling, and it's beautifully lit at night. That's one of them. There's another bridge we've done in Napa, First Street Bridge and Third Street Bridge, and the Maxwell Bridge in the Napa areas. And those are all, you know, they're nicely done. They're, they, they respect the community input. The Third Street Bridge we did in Napa had a lot of community input, and they wanted a 19th century bridge. And so that's what we did. You know, in other words, we take the input, and we don't try to always lay our our ideas of modernism on them. We listen to the community, and then the first three bridges, of course, are different. And that one, and that's another one in Napa that we've done, and that one's I think a year or two ago. And so that's a, a good example of a more modern bridge where we put lights in the deck, and so you walk on a lit surface. And and then there's other bridges that we've done in the Cooper River Bridge in Charleston, South Carolina, the Cable State Bridge, and that's the biggest one in North America at the moment, and that took a lot of participation from Mayor Riley in particular, who's a very sort of hot architectural fan. And he had a selection committee of architects from VMI, Virginia Military Institute, which has an architectural school. He had other people you know, advising, and so we had a lot of participation from the public, and they've got a bridge that they're very proud of. And you can see it under letterheads and things like that. So it's, that might give you some basic idea. There are the Malheur Bridge in France is a beauty, designed by Foster, and it's uh, it's a cable state bridge. There's another bridge in uh, in London. It was sort of enabled a wobbly bridge, and that's a suspension bridge. It's a little cable system that you know ties the modern museum and goes over the Thames and sort of faces down in St. Paul. So there's some of those bridges. There's other ones as well. There's some. There's one in Vladivostok that is just being built now. It's just been completed. It's a big kind of V shape. That's sort of in Russia, mm-hmm. the northern side of Russia. That, Eastern side and the southeastern side. So, and there's a lot of bridge activity throughout the world. There's a lot of work that's going on. We did a bridge in Dubai that hasn't been built yet. That's pretty spectacular, I think. So, talk a little bit about fads that go in and out with respect to bridges. I mean, like the eastern span, the new eastern span of the Bay Bridge, the single tower cable stayed bridges seem to be very popular right now. Yeah, what happens is that the Golden Gate Bridge, of course, is the biggest Art Deco monument in the world. You know, that's, so the the style at the time in the 30s was this Art Deco, and so they brought it right into the bridge. And there are a lot of elements on that bridge on the Golden Gate that are redundant that reinforce that style. If you pull off the plates that cover the trusses and things like that, you'll see just a regular truss system that's throughout the bridge. And the stepping in the towers and things like that, where you know, where optical illusions are doing cor- corrections on. So that, a lot of that applies to the Bay Bridge. And what we did on the Bay Bridge, the single tower, was we set it up in a way that 
it sort of evolved, but when you take a Saturn V rocket and you match it up with a tower, you'll see there's a lot of similarities. So we, we tried to anticipate what forms we would see in the 21st century, in the latter part of the century. And, you know, as designers, we felt the rockets were kind of close and symbolic of a new age. And so we sort of used that as a metaphor, which architects tend to do. We didn't really talk about it with the public, but we were trying to find some kind of cue to, to use as a metaphor for the bridge. Talk a little bit about where you see bridge design going. What might be the fads five years from now, ten years from now? Well, the fads right now are really big are the cable-stayed bridges, and that's the one that, that I just mentioned. We did right. in Charleston, South Carolina. We did the one that we have in Portland. They're all cable-stays, and the public really has gotten hold of these as lovely bridges. And the second most important forms you see everywhere are arch bridges. The public, again, likes the arch, and they do, there's been some studies done that the arch is 70 80% of the population. They like arch bridges, and that's kind of traditional bridges throughout the years. It's They've been made in stone and steel and concrete, and they're all over the world. So, But the cable state bridge is a very popular bridge right now, so I suspect that'll last for another 20 or 30 years, and maybe there'll be smaller suspension bridges that'll come back into play. But the uh, the Carquinas Bridge, the suspension bridge down there, and, and even the, the Bay Bridge, the self-anchoring suspension bridges, those are the first new suspension bridge in about 60 years in the United States. Talk about the difference, to, to explain to our listeners a little bit, the difference between a cable-stayed bridge and a suspension bridge. Okay, well, a suspension bridge has a cable on it that's a catenary form. In other words, if you hold the string up between your two fingers, you know, between your two hands, you'll see it, it takes a sag, and that's called a catenary form. And that's a basic form of a suspension bridge. And from that form, you can work out mathematics, you know, what the curve is and what the components are. And then you can do what we call suspenders. Those are the elements that hang down from that main cable, like the Golden Gate Bridge. On a cable-stayed bridge, that's a bridge where the tower goes up, it's built first, and then they do the deck and segments. And they balance on either side of the tower, they balance the segments with cables. And those cables are straight lines. And as they build up the deck and segments, they have these straight lines going to these segments and they gradually reach out and they take up a sail shape on both sides and it's usually balanced where they can do it. And that's the difference between a cable-stayed bridge and a suspension bridge. The extent to which so much of the roadway is prefabricated these days and then essentially snapped into place, talk about how that's impacted bridge design and bridge building. Well, again, it's a system that's used in certain areas and certain cost systems. Sometimes they do it like a cast-in-place bridge, which is where they build the forms and they cast the concrete in. And sometimes if the bridge is over a very hard river to build over, like the terrain and that, they'll do the cast-in-place. And so it sort of depends on the span and where it is. But the like on the Bay Bridge, the eastern span, they uh, form the segmental parts in Stockton that, flows them down the river in a barge, and then they hoisted them into the deck, and then they bolted them to each other, and they finally tied them together with these long tension cables. So what you see out there is, is really a hollowed system, so you can actually walk through the middle of the bridge on these in this uh, void that's between the deck and the underside of the, of the system. What is your sense of what, what the future of the Bay Bridge is at this point, the eastern span? supposed to last between 100 and 150 years, and if it's well-maintained, there's no telling how long it'll go. 
as you know, the Golden Gate Bridge is seventy over seventy five years old now, and it's I don't I think it's probably got another hundred years or something. The way they take care of it, which they do a beautiful job. Whereas we we worked on a bridge in New York for six months called the Tappan Zee, and it's an, it's a steel frame truss bridge like the span bridges, and it's sixty years old, and they're tearing it down and going to build a new one because it just wasn't maintained properly, and the climate in that area is much not as benign as it is here. So. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the existing Bay Bridge, the western side of the Bay Bridge. Yeah, well, when the western side was done there, I guess there were six different, seven different, six or seven different schemes, and so that was sort of the one that went out. And that, they couldn't, my understanding, and again, I'm not an engineer, but my understanding was that the western spans, they tried to do it like a double, two double suspension bridges, but they couldn't work out that, I guess they didn't trust the detailing with the two connected, so there's this big anchorage block that you see out there in the middle. And so you have two suspension bridges, and it's probably the first time it was done in the world, because at the time it was a huge, massive under engineering undertaking, and it was touted as the greatest man-made structure in the world in the modern era and things like that. So that was quite unique about it, and so... But it has short towers. It's, the towers are about 200 feet short of the Golden Gate, so you can get that. Remember, I told you one-third, two-thirds sequence, and if the towers were higher, it would have had a lot more graceful look to it. So, Donald McDonald, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. No, thank you for having me. We'll take Thanks a break. A lot. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 